Section 15 of Northern Trails, Book 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Melissa Jean. Northern Trails, Book 2. By William J. Long. The Story of Copsheep, Part 3. It was at this time, when the lobsters were most defenseless, that Copsheep found them. There were hundreds of them, from the size of your hand up to the big, shy fellow that would fill a basket, each one hidden away in his own den. And Copsheep left all other game and took to lobster hunting. It was a tingling kind of sport, gliding noiselessly with every sense on the alert, through the waving forests and over the rocks, for scores of hungry bandits, monstrous sea bass and horse mackerel, and worst of all dogfish, had taken advantage of the new food supply, and were lurking in every covert, ready to snap up the salmon and other fish that came hunting for lobsters. So Copsheep never knew, when he approached a den, whether he would find a tidbit for himself or an ogre to eat him up and his hunting was very much as if you were prowling among the woods and mountain caves, expecting game at every moment, but not knowing whether you would find a rabbit that you wanted, or a big grizzly bear, or a dragon that might want you. His method of hunting never varied. He would glide among the waving green fronds, trying, as every other wild creature does, to see everything without himself being seen, until he spied a little cave or den that might hide a soft-shelled lobster. Then he would settle down where the sea growth hid him, and watch all the surroundings steadily. If nothing stirred, and if no suspicious glint of bronze or silver scales flickered in the waving forest, he would glide up and peer into the den. If the lobster were there, and not too big, he dragged him out and ate him quickly. But at the first suspicious glint or movement, he would whirl like a flash, making the delicate seaweeds roll and quiver violently to hide his flight and the next instant he was fifty feet away, and hidden so cunningly that the big shark or sea bass would drive straight over his head without seeing him. Once as he hunted in this way, he spied a queer cave on the rocks, with gleaming white points reaching up from the bottom and down from the top, like stalactites and stalagmites, and with just room enough for him to swim in between them. A perfect place it looked for the nice soft lobster to be hiding. Copsey lay in the weeds and watched a few moments, then glided forward to enter. Just then something began to glow dull red over the cave, and in a flash Copsey had whirled away, while the long weeds swayed and rolled and hid him as he darted aside. In a moment he was stealing back to watch the den from another hiding place. Suddenly the whole cave seemed to move and tremble. The white points above and below came slowly together, and there was no more an open doorway. Out from the rocks glided a queer monster of a mouthfish, colored like the gray rocks, with dull red eyes and a head like a Chinese dragon. He looked around for a moment, backed into his lair, opened his huge mouth, and there was the cave again, looking just like a den in the rocks. But Copsey was not looking for any more lobsters in that neighborhood, and he was a wiser and more wary fish as he glided away on his solitary hunting. So the long summer passed by and Copsey grew daily larger with his comfortable and lazy living. When his brothers and sisters came down from the river, they found him more than twice their size, and a full twenty pounds in weight. By spring he had added five pounds more, and when the first shoal of big salmon moved riverward, with the tides of full moon, Copsey was among them. For on this run, when the river is full and strong with the spring floods, only the largest fish are equal to the hard work of climbing the falls and rapids. So the years went by with little change in Copsey's methods of living. Only he grew bigger and bigger, 
and his long summer in the sea had made him even more full of moods and whims than most salmon. Once when a flood had blocked the river with logs, so that the salmon could neither swim under nor jump over the obstacle, he had gone down the coast with a few of his fellows and run up a new stream, contrary to the habits of all salmon, which in general run up only the rivers in which they are born. Another season when he was heavier and lazier than usual, he had ascended the river only as far as the first rapids, just above the tide water. There, with a dozen unusually large fish, he spent a month playing idly and sleeping, as salmon often do. And when you hooked one of these big fellows, he bolted headlong down the river, and either smashed your tackle, or, if you were quick enough to leap into your canoe, for they never stopped or skulked like other salmon, he took you swiftly out through the breakers, and you had the rare experience of playing a salmon in the open sea. This year Copsip has come up leisurely, as far as the pool below the falls, and this is as far as he will ever get, if our tackle holds and he still keeps on rising at pretty things that the current sweeps over him. See, there he is, a monster salmon, plunging out of the white rips, just where we left him when we sat down by the river to hear his story. We have rested him long enough now, and have changed the number six, Jock Scott, to a number eight of the same kind, and all the while Copsy is rising splendidly. A suitable excitement creeps over you as the long line shoots out from the springing tip, farther and farther, till it falls straight across the white turmoil below which the salmon is lying. Swiftly the leader swings down and straightens in the current. The tiny fly whirls up and dances for an instant in the very spot where you saw Copsy's rise. There, a swift rush and the flash of heavy shoulders as he turns downward. Don't strike now, as you would a trout, for the spring of your tip against the heavy plunge of that big fish will snap your leader as if it was made of cobweb. A ponderous surge at the end of your rod, a light pull to set the hook fast, then your heart jumps to your mouth, and all your nerves thrill and tingle, and shout hilariously as your reel screams at the first terrific rush. Out of the river springs a huge salmon, shooting up like a great jack-in-the-box, and tumbles in and jumps out again, here, there, everywhere at once, like a rooster with his head cut off. Away he goes, zzzm, leaping clearer and throwing himself broadside across ten feet of white water, shaking his head like a dog with a woodchuck. And then a headlong rush and tumble down the first rapids with the real screaming shrill defiance after him at every plunge. Noel has started to his feet at the first rush and reaches instinctively for the long gaff. Pycosh, oh Pycosh, big one, he says, staring open-mouthed at the torrent, not knowing where Copsheep will come up next. Then he settles back and fills his pipe, knowing well that a half hour of delicate, skillful work must follow before you will get any glimpse of the big fish, other than what he chooses to give you by leaping clear of the water, trying to strike the line with his tail or to shake himself free of the tormenting little thing that plucks him by the jaw and that holds on in spite of all his shaking and jumping. He is down in the pool below now, resting for an instant in the eddy under a big rock. Three-fourths of your line is already out of the reel, and if he makes another rush downstream, you must lose him. Down you go, lively, scrambling over the rocks, floundering through the water, slipping, sliding, stumbling, down you go, all the while with your rod up, and bent to keep a strain on the fish, and with the reel singing its rhythmic zoom, 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 as you hurriedly gather in the line. Get below your salmon now, and stay below him if you possibly can, for then he will have to fight against the current, as well as against the spring of your rod. As you carry out the cunning maneuver, Copsheep starts off on another series of wild leaps and rushes, 
swings wide across the river, and again darts below you. He lies quiet in one deep spot, where the pull of your rod will just balance the push of the current. The line stands straight up, humming steadily, while a spurt of white water curls up beside it. All the while, you feel a steady succession of harsh tugs and jerks that threaten every instant to part your tackle. Copseep is jigging, and that means he is hooked, and probably lightly, in the lip, rather than in the mouth or tongue, and that you must be extra careful if you expect to get him. Could you see him now, you would find that he is standing fair on his head, in the current, darting his jaw with rapid jerks against the bottom, trying to scrape off your fly or to break your leader against the stones. Ten minutes pass slowly, and though you are below him, pulling his head sideways as hard as you dare, you have not budged him an inch. Then Noel appears, gliding in and out like a shadow among the trees on the bank. Some stones, Noel, big ones, you call to him, and the Indian begins to hurl stones at the spot where Copseep is sulking. A lucky one starts him at last, and he is off like a flash, rushing and jumping all over the pool, while you endeavor desperately to reel in the bagging line, and keeps Copseep out of the strong rush of water against the farther bank. Spite of you, he surges into it. Then, feeling the full power of the flood, he starts straight down like an express train for the distant sea. After him you go, splashing like a startled moose through the pools, jumping the rocks like a goat, down, down through the rapids, with a heavy side pull, for you are getting desperate, at every turn of the river, till with a single immense satisfaction you lead him out of the current, into a still deep reach of the river, and here the fight begins all over again. Up to the present moment, every chance in the unequal struggle was in the salmon's favor, but now you venture a wee, small hope that you may get him. Down below are some heavy rapids, where you can neither follow nor hold your fish. So for half an hour you coax and humor and bully him, letting him have his own way when he is heading where you want him to go, but straining your light tackle to the breaking point to turn him away from the rapids. Then a great silver side rolls up heavily for an instant, showing that he is weary enough to be led, and you begin cautiously to reel him into the bank. Noel has disappeared, thinking of course that you lost your fish in the second desperate run through the rapids. You are half glad, for now you have a chance to land a salmon in the most sportsman-like way of all, by beaching him yourself without help from the big gaff. There's only one possible spot hereabouts for so delicate a landing. A little shingly beach where the bank shelves gently lead into the river. If you can lead him there on his side, at the first touch of the bottom he will flap his tail and kick himself out on land, aided by the gentle pull of your line. Just below the spot a broken stub leans far out, only two or three feet above the water. That is a danger point, but you must either risk it or shout for Noel, and you are glad, thinking of Copseep, to give him the one small chance. Now you avoid the beginner's eagerness and the mistake of being in too much of a hurry, and play your salmon till he rolls up on his side and lies there fanning the water. Then gently, very gently, you lead him toward the shingle. He is almost yours. You could gaff him yourself as he swings past you, but your nerves tingle as you see how big he is. But at the first touch of the stones, a new strength quivers suddenly in Copseep. He turns on his belly, surges heavily downstream, and spite of the straining rod, passes slowly, powerfully, under the leaning stub. You drop your rod instantly to the horizontal, so that your leader will not touch the wood, and draw him out towards the middle of the river. Again he rolls up on his side exhausted, and lies for a moment just below the stub. 
his eyes see it dimly and with a last mighty effort he turns and leaps clear over it upstream the line doubles around the log he falls with all his weight on the taut leader there is a heavy splash then the salmon is lying free in the shallows the fly swings loose under the leaning stub with a tiny white bit of copsteep slip glistening on the barb on the instant you have dropped your rod and all the sportsman calm vanishes in the fisherman's eagerness as you jump forward to grab him your hands grip his broad back but his slippery sides seem to ooze out between your fingers as he rolls away a swift plunge as he sees his big enemy then a broad tail waves triumphantly over the flood and the salmon vanishes into the deeps good-bye copsteep and good luck you're the biggest fish i have seen all summer and of course you got away up at Copswagen, the salmon are still rising but i have no more heart for the little nine-pounders till next summer then when i shall look for you again in the same place under the falls meanwhile may the bear and the seal and the shark and the net always miss you the fisherman has no regrets that your story is not yet ended End of the story of Copseep. End of section 15. End of Northern Trails book 2 by William J. Long.